Well, it's a great joy to be with you this morning to study Deuteronomy. <laughs> Spent about two years on that, didn't we? I sit in the back with Gordon Thompson and Louie so as uh, to be as far away from Sandy as possible. So uh, he wouldn't ask me to do this because you don't, it's really hard to follow Sandy Wilson. It's, it's not the greatest joy in the world. And then to have Ronnie Stevens sitting in the back. Ronnie, where are you? Greetings, Ronnie. I know that uh, Second Press loves Ronnie Stevens. Have him here. So not only do I get to follow Sandy Wilson, but I got Ronnie Stevens in the back. It's like having the Trinity here. Good grief. Well, the Trinity is here, obviously. Um, well, it's a great joy to be with you. Second Press has been uh, very close. To, uh, been very close to Second Press all these years. Uh, in fact, some of you may not know this, but Second Press was the first church and, and first Evan with uh, uh, back in the day with um, uh, 19. This is 1977. Were the first two churches to fund the Neighborhood Christian Center. Uh, when we got that started and hired Joanne Ballard, it's now, of course, a phenomenal ministry. Uh, Second Press uh, had the vision of uh, racial reconciliation and community development, and First Evan followed right behind it, and we had a, uh, a whopping budget of about $25,000, and uh, look where it is today. So we're, Second Press has been really at the forefront of urban ministry uh, in, our, in partnership with, with uh, my life all these many years. Well, we're going to, uh, going to look at uh, chapter 14 today of the book of Acts, uh, ending the first missionary journey. And then next week we get to some real excitement. Not that Acts 14 is not exciting, but next week, chapter 15, is going to be really the turning point uh, of the gospel mission in the world. Uh, it's an exciting chapter in the, in the life of Christendom. And so you won't want to miss next week. Uh, Acts 15 is really the turning point of the book of Acts, the turning point of Christendom as we know it today. Now, we've, uh, we've noted time again as we looked at Acts 13 last week, last two weeks, uh, that preaching of the gospel, proclamation of the gospel, is often, often, uh, did often precipitate opposition and persecution, tribulation, and it will continue to do so in our chapter today and throughout the, uh, the book of Acts and throughout the, the first two or three hundred years of Christendom. Um, we also notice that persecution often and almost always led to expansion of the gospel. So there's a direct correlation between persecution and expansion. And you see uh, Luke putting those two ideas together throughout the book of Acts. And we saw that last week in Paul's, in, in, at the beginning of the first missionary journey, how Paul and his comrades, Barnabas, uh, and then, of course, John Mark uh, left them. But he saw how they were persecuted in, in Antioch, in the city in Antioch. Yet the gospel of Jesus Christ continued to expand. It could not be stopped amidst this opposition. So as we finish up the first journey today, we'll see that Paul and Barnabas face intense persecution once again, nothing new to them, as they continue this mission to Galatia, uh, modern-day Turkey. And they're going to go deeper inside Galatia here uh, in this chapter as we call, as the first missionary journey, as we call it, will culminate, uh, and they'll return back to the church that sent them in, in Syrian Antioch. Uh, last week, we got to uh, explore the very first sermon of the Apostle Paul and, and look at really the highlights uh, that what, what would become the doctrine of the Christian faith. 
Um, today, we're going to hear a very different sermon. In fact, I would challenge you, if you haven't done this already, a great way to study the book of Acts is to study the sermons because the sermons in the book of Acts really are the basic stepping stones of what later would become orthodoxy or orthodox doctrine of the Christian faith. All the New Testament church had was the Old Testament and the teachings and the life of Jesus, which had been passed down orally, uh, and the teaching of the apostles. It would, it would come much later when Paul and others, particularly the, uh, James, the Lord's brother, who was also called an apostle, would begin to write what we call epistles. And so the, uh, and James probably wrote the earliest epistle. I'm sure Ronnie Stevens will correct me if that's wrong. But James probably wrote the first epistle, the book of James, and then Paul followed right along with First and Second Thessalonians and then the, some of the other epistles. But those epistles weren't uh, around. And so the, the, the sermons of the apostles and the teachings of Jesus, we don't have all the sermons, by the way. You know that. We don't have any sermons from Thomas. We don't have any sermons from the apostle Philip. Uh, we, have, uh, we don't have any, any further knowledge of Philip the deacon. Uh, so once Paul takes center stage here in the book of Acts, we hear really very little, if anything, about the rest of the apostles until we get to chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council. And so Luke is writing the narrative. Luke is an historian. He's a doctor. He's given us a thumbnail sketch of the early church. He's not given us everything. We wish we had more, but in God's wisdom, we have what we need. But we don't have all the sermons. In fact, we don't have all the, the uh, we don't have nearly all the uh, trips and, and uh, visitations of the Apostle Paul. In fact, at the end of this chapter, you'll see where Paul and Barnabas returned to the church that sent them in Pisidian Antioch. I mean, in uh, Syrian Antioch. Well, we think that the first missionary journey has spanned about two years. It may have ended around 47 or 48 A.D. The Jerusalem Council, which we pick up in chapter 15. We believe fairly, uh, fairly certainly that it happened in 51 A.D. So there's a four or five year span in the book of Acts where we don't hear anything about Paul or Barnabas. Now, do you think, do you think the Apostle Paul just hung out for five years? That he was on vacation, playing golf somewhere, maybe taking a little hiatus? I doubt it. He was probably strengthening the churches in Galatia and Syria uh, churches all around, because you can't expect Paul to be, to be sitting around and kicking back. But we don't have all the history. And so what we have in the book of Acts is a sketch, an outline, as it were, the Apostle Paul and some of the other apostles. But, of course, after Paul takes center stage, we hear very little about the rest of the apostles. In fact, we don't have all the letters of Paul either. There's at least a couple letters, maybe one or two, that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians that we don't have. And certainly Paul wrote other letters, but we don't have letters from a lot of the apostles. For instance, we don't have letters from the apostle uh, Philip. We don't have letters from the apostle Thomas. Now, actually, there were letters written by these apostles that are not included in our Bible, uh, the canon, uh, the canonized New Testament. Uh, there is a gospel of Thomas. There is other, other writings that were attributed to some of the apostles, but they were not considered scripture. For two reasons, principally. One is uh, these letters uh, may have contained doctrine or teachings that were contrary to apostolic, the apostolic witness or the teachings of Jesus. And so they were considered uh, inauthentic. Or they, the letter could not be traced to an apostle or a disciple or a colleague, a close colleague of one of the apostles. So we do have some spurious letters out there. You can go find those in a library and read them, but they're not scripture. They were not considered scripture uh, by the early church. 
And so in the book of Acts, we have this rather uh, exciting outline. I mean, this travel log that, that, that uh, Dr. Luke is writing, and, and we, we, we learn so much about the early church. We just we wish there were more. There's not. And so always remember the sermons that we hear are outlines. We're not hearing the whole sermon. I can't imagine uh, Paul, uh, just like I can't imagine Sandy Wilson, Sandy Wilson preaching for five minutes. Can you? You can read these sermons in five minutes. So what we have is an outline. We have Luke putting together some of the, the, the uh, more important uh, points of those sermons. So as we dive into uh, Luke chapter, I mean, uh, Acts chapter 14, that's a bit of background. Uh, as we look at the close of the first missionary journey, of course, John Mark has already abandoned them. We don't know exactly why, but you, it is great to find out that Mark and Paul are later reunited as brothers in Christ, even after this split. Um, So let's read the text. Turn with me to chapter 14. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained. So they remained. For a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to their words of grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and never had walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the Lycaonian The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, we are, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I wish he hadn't said that. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, 
And when they had spoken the word to Perga in Perga, they went down to Atalia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. May God grant grace in the reading of his word. So here we have Paul and Barnabas being expelled from Antioch, and they travel about 90 miles southeast to this city called Iconium. It's a major city today in Turkey, the fourth largest city called Konya. Uh, we don't really know what the population was at that time, but it was a major urban area in Galatia, the, the Roman province of Asia Minor in Galatia there at the, uh, in the first century. And it was their normal routine to, it was Paul's normal routine to travel to major urban areas. We'll see that throughout the book of Acts. He was an urban missionary. And Iconium would be no different. It's a major, major city there in Galatia. And as was normal, they started in the synagogue and began to preach and proclaim the gospel we see in verse 1. And a great number of Jews and Greeks or Gentiles believed as we continue to study the book of Acts, we'll note that almost always, almost always, Paul starts in the synagogue. And we note uh, also from the beginning of the first missionary journey that they sought to make disciples of both Jews and Gentiles. This was a huge departure, as we've studied, uh, for Paul, uh, as he was the, the apostle to the Gentiles. And, and, and we note, note from the church there at Antioch, it's multicultural, multi racial makeup of that church that actually sent them out. And we, we also realize that in Acts chapter 9, remember when, when Paul was converted, that Jesus uh, told Ananias, he said, uh, I have appointed him to be my messenger to the Gentiles and to their rulers, okay, and to Israel, and I will show him what? How he must suffer for my name. Now, I suspect Ananias told Paul that. Don't you think? And Paul did not shrink from that path. He knew that he would be proclaiming. Here, here he was a terrorist. He, he ate Gentiles for lunch. I mean, Jews for lunch that converted to Christianity. Yet he was now, he hated Gentiles, yet now he was going to be sent to the Gentiles. God has a sense of humor. I mean, when you really think about it, we, we really don't quite grasp that. It is like, it is like, asking John Perkins, who will be our main speaker at the Urban Summit, March the 16th and 17th, but you can pray for him. He just was hospitalized with some major issues, but he's, he's still in the hospital. It'd be like John Perkins being asked by God to share the gospel with the Ku Klux Klan. And you know what John Perkins has done? He has proclaimed the gospel to Ku Klux Klan members and seen them come to faith. It's like John Perkins, who's African-American, who was almost beaten to death and jailed in Mississippi during the civil rights struggle, to go back to the jailers who beat him nearly to death and proclaim the gospel. And that's exactly what John Perkins did. That's why I admire John so much. He has been persecuted for the gospel. He, didn't got, he did not go back and engage in the civil rights movement because he was a liberal. He went and engaged a civil rights liberal because he was passionately in love with Jesus Christ and passionately committed to racial reconciliation and justice. And he almost lost his life as a result. 
If I was John Perkins, I don't know that I could proclaim the gospel to Ku Klux Klan members or the jailers that beat me to death, almost beat me to death, but John did. John and Paul have a lot in common. This is Paul who hated Gentiles, hated Jews that converted to Christianity, yet Ananias said, this is what Jesus says who arrested you on that road. You are going to be the missionary to the Gentiles. And I'm going to show you how much you will suffer for my name. Ironic, sense of humor. It's just what God does. He turns things absolutely upside down. I know he has in my life. So here we have Paul. He's suffering, and uh, he's about ready to suffer some more. But his MO, his modus operandi, is to win many Jews and Gentiles to the faith and to suffer for his names. So we repeat in our outline exactly what Sandy said last week. We must practice the gospel method, and it starts with the church. Starts with the church. In Paul's, in, in this story, it starts in the synagogue. And while it starts in the church, we also proclaim the gospel to the lost, to reach the lost. So unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, it seems to me in the text that the converts in Iconium were the ones receiving the brunt of the persecution. It says the brothers were being, the minds of the folks were being poisoned against the brothers. Now, I'm not, I would not exempt the apostles from that, but it's important to note that they were, they were against the brothers as well, the ones that were coming to faith. Perhaps if they were Jews uh, converting to, to Christ, converting to Christianity, accepting Jesus as their Messiah, perhaps they were excommunicated from the synagogue. If they were Gentiles that were coming to faith, maybe people wouldn't trade with them, kick them out of the country club, wouldn't let them come to the guild, wouldn't let them trade. They were Minds were being poisoned against those who were coming to faith. Maybe all sorts of economic uh, 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 issues were coming against the brothers who were coming into faith. And they would certainly have been easier targets, right? I mean, it was normal in that day for men like Paul and Barnabas, traveling prophets, okay, to come to cities and to preach. Sometimes strange doctrines. It would be much easier to persecute your own. Those who were coming out of uh, paganism or out of the synagogue into faith. And so the brothers were being persecuted along with, of course, Paul and Barnabas. So we should expect opposition. The minds were poisoned against the brothers. We should expect opposition to the truth. Expect opposition as believers. But what did the apostles do? They preached even more boldly. I just love that statement. They even more boldly proclaimed the gospel. And I would suspect it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas now boldly proclaiming the gospel. It was also the brothers who had been saved and converted, who had experienced the joy of salvation. Certainly, you couldn't shut them up either. The whole city now is hearing this gospel boldly proclaimed throughout the city. And, and um, by the way, here you see that Barnabas is also called an apostle. Now, just a little side note there. Barnabas was not one of the twelve, as we know. But the, the word apostle had two meanings in the New Testament. It meant, the uh, first of all, it referred to the twelve, along with Paul and James that we'll meet in chapter 15. That would be James, the Lord's brother. Uh, James, the apostle, has already been, of course, martyred. And so you have the apostles, the 12 plus Paul and James, and then those who were sent out to plant churches. 
were also called apostles. You'll see the word apostle used for many of the church planters and missionaries throughout the, the book of Acts. And, and Paul will re- refer to different colleagues of his as apostles. So the word apostles has those two meanings. And it's in context, of course, you can determine what those meanings would be. Um, at any rate, they keep preaching the gospel. And, of course, we continue to proclaim the gospel. And they live the gospel. They live the gospel. They didn't back down from opposition. And God granted them signs and wonders in order to authenticate the gospel message. So we don't back down when opposition comes. We don't give up. We don't compromise the truth. We proclaim the gospel in word and in deed every day of our lives. We, our lives should reflect the grace of God, both in the way we speak and the way we proclaim and the way we live. And as God puts people in our path. So we don't back down when oppositions come. We speak boldly for the Lord. Now, Luke also notes that there are miraculous signs and wonders or miracles that were being performed by Paul and Barnabas as they were preaching. But notice it was the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, and it was the Lord who granted the signs and wonders at the hands of Paul and Barnabas. So signs and wonders are granted by the Lord to confirm God's word. Signs and wonders are granted by the Lord to confirm God's word. Now, the Lord often, but not always, often, but not always, grants signs and wonders for the purpose, for only one purpose, to bear witness to the gospel message, to authenticate the gospel message. And it is the Lord that does it. It's not us at all, right? When I did graduate work at Fuller Seminary, in in Pasadena area, John Wimber's teaching was becoming very, very popular. He was the founder of the Vineyard Church, and uh, he believed and taught that there were certain signs and wonders, in fact, seven signs and wonders that always accompanied legitimate gospel gospel, uh, preaching and mission. Uh, And uh, this teaching uh, was very popular, particularly started on the West Coast. John was actually, uh, I think, a Presbyterian minister when he started out where he founded the vineyard. And at least two of those signs and wonders that accompanied legitimate gospel mission were exorcism and and healing. Even uh, raising the dead was one of the signs and wonders as well. Now, uh, I'm 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 a kid that grew up in Memphis and thoroughly steeped in Reformed theology and dispensationalism here in the South. That sounded kind of strange to me, exorcism, raising the dead, working miracles, but this was the teaching of, of uh, John and, and, his, and his followers. But I want us to note, because I, I, I disagree with that, by the way, I don't think that's legitimate, and here's why. Let's look at the book of Acts. Signs and wonders don't always accompany preaching of the gospel or the conversion of the lost. You'll find time and time again, there's no signs and wonders or miracles at all, Okay. So they don't always, they don't always accompany. Secondly, signs and wonders are God's doing. It's his business. He'll do what he wants. He continues to do miracles. Sometimes we're just too scientific and objective to see them. Uh, but I know if you've talked and we heard this, we've heard this time again, and Sandy's mentioned it, uh, missionaries have seen so many miraculous signs and wonders in their work throughout the world. I wonder if, if God's just given up on us as Westerners. We just, we, we're, so, we're so locked into this 
scientific mindset. We can't see it. I, I remember hearing one time from a, wasn't, it wasn't at Fuller, by the way, it was a local seminary when I took a few courses, that when Jesus walked on the water, he didn't walk on the water at all. There were, he knew where the rocks were. It was a really shallow lake. And so he was walking on the rocks in order to make people think he was walking on the water. I mean, that's how, how, how anti-miraculous we are. It's God's doing, though. God can invade history and has invaded history and continues to invade history all the time. Give us eyes to see his grace and his work in our world. Thirdly, signs and wonders are given to authenticate the gospel. And fourthly, the proclamation of the gospel is the primary means. Proclamation of the gospel is the primary means by which God saves sinners, not signs and wonders. So we keep signs and wonders in their appropriate place. They authenticate the gospel. It's preaching of the word. It is a primary means by which God saves sinners, not signs and wonders. And they don't always, and even in the book of Acts and throughout history, they do not always accompany the preaching of the gospel. In verse 4, we find the city divided to such an extent that the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles and their rulers hatch a plot to persecute and to stone, to kill Paul and presumably Barnabas. Now, this was a lynch mob. This was not, uh, this was not done uh, in, in the court. This was not done after long deliberation. This was going to be a lynching. The truth can divide, can it? Truth often divides, doesn't it? Jesus said as much in Luke chapter 12. You can look that up where mother will be against daughter and father against son. The truth often divides. The Jews expected a conquering king, a Messiah who would restore Jerusalem to its Davidic heritage. And this suffering servant was a stumbling block, a Messiah crucified Come on, that's not what we expected. And Paul says that to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, the gospel is foolishness. God becoming flesh? We can't, we can't grasp that. That's foolishness. The truth divides. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, where Paul says, foolishness to the Gentiles, or stumbling block to the, the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The gospel upset the apple cart. It disturbs, always disturbs the status quo. We see it happening time and time again throughout the book of Acts. We see it happening time and time again in our own culture. It's true today. When we stand on God's word, when we carefully state the truth, study the truth, according to the scripture, it can and does divide because the truth is not always popular. Now, I know I have to be careful, and may, maybe many of those who know me know this, I have to be careful to speak the truth in love. Some of you have that issue, too, I suspect. I don't want people to reject the gospel because I'm a jerk. I can be one, I suppose. Uh, my daughters tell me so. <laughs> By the way, I do have four daughters and three granddaughters and a fourth granddaughter on the way. It just ain't fair. Uh, three weeks ago, I contracted a virus in my inner ear, so I've lost hearing in this right ear, which is good when you're driving. Just think about it. <laughs> but I blow it every day in terms of speaking the truth in love. We're to speak the truth, stand on the truth, but always in grace, always in love. 
And you know what happens when we don't speak the truth in love? Don, you know what happens? We are considered self-righteous, arrogant, judgmental. We speak the truth in love. I was with a non-believer the other day. Actually, he would say he is spiritual. That's the new language, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual. Just not religious. I don't think I'm religious either, frankly. I'm a Christ follower. So I asked him to explain what he, he meant by being spiritual, and he said, well, I'm, I'm kind of a mixture of Hindu, uh, pantheism, and this new, and new age. I said, okay. He grew up in a Christian church. He'd been baptized and all. And I, I asked him, I said, well, why did you turn away from the church and from Christ to um, these sort of mixture of religions? And you could have anticipated his comments. He said, well, you Christians are judgmental and self-righteous. You think... Your way is the only way. All other religions are wrong. He was upset. Something has happened in his life. He was upset. So we had further conversation. I'll continue to have conversation with him. Now, it could have been easy. On one hand, I could have said, well, you're right. It is the only way. You're going to hell. (laughs) That would have started a good conversation, don't you think? But what I'm going to do with this, this young man is he wants to... I'm going to assume he's seeking the truth. And I want to help him find the truth. And I want to do that in love. I'm not going to condemn him. That's God's business. It's God's business. It's not mine. I'm not going to compromise the truth, but I'm going to help him discover the truth. But truth can divide. So when the apostles found out about the lynch mob, they left. They fled. Now, we don't take from this that Paul's a coward. Because we're going to see that he's not. The Holy Spirit had not yet finished with Paul what he needed to do. That would be 65, 67 A.D. before his life will end. The Holy Spirit has a lot of work for Paul. So he flees. He takes refuge. The book of Acts is full of martyrs and persecutions. This is just not Paul's time. So he leaves. And while persecution is inevitable for the Christian, we don't go looking for it. I think that's something we've talked about. We'll be persecuted enough. Don't worry about it. It'll come. Don't go looking for it. It'll come fairly naturally. Um, We're not going to be lynched in Memphis for being a Christian. We're not going to go to the electric chair in America for being a Christian. The persecution we face will be more subtle criticism, being called foolish, being called naive, ignorant, maybe. Um, But you know what? If we live out the gospel principles of love, of neighbor and enemy, integrity, justice, taking up the cause of the poor and the oppressed, racial reconciliation. Just do those things. You'll be persecuted. You'll be criticized. Stand on the word. Persecution will come. You'll be maligned. It's not too hard. Go looking for it. So Paul and Barnabas aren't cowards, not at all. We will see later. They got the inside scoop. They uh, were convinced that the Holy Spirit was not finished with them yet, so they fled uh, to, the, uh, to a city just not too far away. Now, by the way, I wanted to mention, uh, we don't understand persecution. I mean, maybe, maybe some of you have been criticized in business uh, in your neighborhood, have been called uh, things about being a Christian. We really, as Westerners, don't understand it. There's a ministry called Voice of the Martyrs that's actually having a conference here Saturday at Trinity Baptist in Cordova, and I'd re- really recommend it to you. It's free. And let me read you their, their mission statement. The Voice of the Martyrs' mission is to serve the persecuted church 
through practical spiritual assistance while leading Christians in the free world into fellowship with them. So they actually put it on this conference uh, to help people understand what the persecuted church, what Christians today, our brothers and sisters throughout the world, are enduring for the cause of the gospel, being killed, being persecuted. Uh, John Wesley said that a work of mercy of the Christian church is visiting and remembering those who are persecuted in jail for the sake of the gospel. Visiting and remembering is a work of mercy that the church should be about. But we don't really understand. If you really want to understand more about what we've been talking about in the book of Acts, I really would urge you to visit Trinity Baptist this Saturday for the Voice of the Martyrs conference. Or go online at persecution.net. Persecution.net is the website for Voice of the Martyrs. And what you can find there is a way to pray for those that are being persecuted today and to pray for them knowledgeably. Uh, and to be with them and remember them in their persecution. That's what we as believers in the West need to be doing, sending money for sure, sending missionaries absolutely, supporting our missionaries on the field, but praying and remembering those, our brothers and sisters all over the world, that are being killed for the gospel, persecution.net. So now they travel further into Galatia to the district of Lycaonia, to the cities of Lystra and Derbe. Uh, it's just a day, Lystra is just a day southeast of Iconium. And Derby is another 60 miles. Now, this is a departure for Paul. These are two backwater towns. These are not major cities. Matter of fact, we cannot find any trace of them. Uh, Ronnie will, I think, I don't think we can find any trace of these two cities uh, archaeologically in Turkey today. We don't really know where they were. Very small cities, agricultural center, backwater towns. And listen to this, totally pagan. How do we know that? How do we know totally pagan? No synagogue, right? So you, you turn to uh, verse 8. Now, listen, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. There's no synagogue, okay? Paul heals this guy. Obviously, he had listened to Paul. Faith was born in his heart by the Holy Spirit, and the Lord healed him of his affliction. But watch what happens. A very different sort of reaction to this miracle. They want to worship them as gods. And so all the people begin in their Lyconian language. Greek was the, was the language of the marketplace. So Paul was probably preaching the gospel in the marketplace. But when this happened, they began to speak in their own dialect. And Paul and Barnabas didn't understand that dialect until the priest of Zeus brought out the barbecue. About to have Memphis in May. And they realize now what's happening. Now, the, tradi- the tradition here is that in this, this little backwater area, it was a tradition that Zeus and Hermes had actually visited this place incognito. And the people of the town did not welcome, in, welcome uh, them in their homes. And so only a, a couple, one couple did actually ask them in their home to sleep for the night. And because of the lack of hospitality, their city was destroyed. So this time they were not going to make that mistake again. So they were going to have a sacrifice to what they thought were gods. And, of course, we see the reaction. Paul and, and Barnabas rush out in the crowd, tear their robes in sign of mourning and, 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 and repentance and saying, we are men like you. But here's what I want us to notice. And there's never enough time, is there? You think you've got an hour. It's not going to be enough time, but I've like, got to get through this. Um, uh, tear their robes, and they start preaching from a very different 
uh, vantage point, right? A very different starting point as we saw in the last chapter in uh, Luke, uh, Acts 13. But just to, uh, real quickly, the Jews had, had uh, proselytized and evangelized all over the Mediterranean by the time the first missionary journey, by the time of the first century. There were synagogues in almost every major city in the Roman Empire. There's a few that are exceptions, like we'll find at Philippi, but there was no synagogue here. The Jews had not evangelized here, no synagogue, no belief in monotheism or, or one God, no Torah, no r- rules and regulations of the Jewish faith. Now, as the Jews had evangelized the Roman Empire, they proselytized Gentiles who actually became Jews, and then there were Gentiles who did not become Jews but were called god fears. They worshipped Yahweh. They respected the Jewish ethic and, and, and the rules and the regulations and the laws. And they worshipped Yahweh. Worshipped, they were monotheists. Okay? But they didn't go all the way and become Jews. They were called God-fearers. And that's what Cornelius was. We, we assume Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was a Gentile. He was a believer but not yet a converted Jew. But here in this backwater town, there were neither God-fearers nor Jews nor proselytes to the Jewish faith. And so Paul could not start from the Old Testament. That would have been been ridiculous. They wouldn't know it. So what does he do? He starts from the natural order. Who made the seas, the heavens? And then he starts with common grace. This God that you don't know, and you're worshiping these other gods, this God you don't know, it gives us rain and sunshine to the just and the unjust. He gives gladness of heart. But he's passed over the nations in previous times and let you live in your ignorance of the one God, but no longer because the Word has become flesh and has dwelt among us. So it's now time to flee these other gods, these vain idols, and worship the living God. But let's not be too hard on these folks for wanting to create a barbecue. We should have no other gods before him. Now, for Lister and Derby, it was pagan gods. For us, it's money. For them, it was the Zeus temple. For us, it's prestige or power or authority uh, or golf. What is it for you? Just don't be too hard on them. We put other gods before Jesus as well. But what we're hearing here is we should not worship these vain things, but turn to the living God, the source of all life. So Judaism had not penetrated this far in Galatia. When I was... uh, with Young Life here in Memphis in the 70s. I started Urban Young Life and uh, was in Orange Mound. And every Monday night, we would have club. Those who know Young Life, there's a, usually a one night where you have club and where the gospel's proclaimed. We have a lot of fun with kids. And every Monday night there in Orange Mound, there would be about 70, 80 kids uh, that would come to the house. We lived right down the street from the high school. We'd have club on Monday night. And as we uh, called Young Life, we always called Young Life Organized Chaos. That's what you do with teenagers, right? Organized. We knew what we were doing. Even the kids were chaotic. But when it was time to preach the gospel, to make the message, all I had to do was this. And the kids got quiet. And I could go on with the message. It didn't matter how rowdy it was. Some of you have experienced that if you did Young Life in the 70s. It doesn't work today. Not as much respect for the, the Bible. But in Orange Mound, in 1975 when I started, 76... Everybody in that community knew about Christ. They knew the Christian message, the story. They respected and revered the church. Everybody in that community. 
I left uh, Memphis in uh, 1981 to do young life work in Southern California. I'll never forget this. On Easter, I was uh, after club one night, I was taking the kid home. And I pulled up in front of his housing project to let him out where he lived. And I said, I asked him if he wanted to commit his life to Christ. I'd known him for a while, built a relationship with him. He looked at me in a puzzled look and he said, I've never heard that story. And I said, what story? He said, about Christ dying for me and dying in my place. Now, being a seminarian by that time and having my Master of Divinity degree, I said, well, maybe he doesn't understand the penal substitutionary view of atonement. <laughs> or Anselm's ransom theory of atonement. Or perhaps he doesn't understand atonement, depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. That's what I No, I didn't say that. He had never heard the story of the crucifixion. 1985. I said to myself then, if that's true in Los Angeles in 1985, it'll be true in Memphis in 1995. It'll be true in this nation in time. And you know, that's what's happened. We cannot uh, proclaim and approach people the same in every situation. We must be flexible with how we proclaim the gospel. We start where people are. We start, we proclaim the gospel. This is Roman numeral two. We must proclaim the gospel message within our hearer's context. We must proclaim the gospel within our hearer's context. That's what Paul did here. We'll see him do it again in in, uh, Athens. But we must be sensitive and start where people are. So they start with themselves. They start with a natural order. They go to common grace. We get the cliff notes, a very different sermon in Acts chapter 13. And it's not really apparent how successful they are until we get to the stoning. Now, just a few minutes or maybe 30 minutes, an hour or whatever, just previous to this, they were worshiping Paul and Barnabas as gods. Height of popularity. Now they want to stone them. Very fickle. Makes any sense to you? Absolutely makes sense. If they accepted Paul's teaching, they would have to turn their back on their culture, on worshiping these vain things, on Zeus and Hermes, so it's very, it's very natural, after they understood what Paul was saying, we don't have the whole sermon, of course, that they would turn against him. And, of course, it was the Jews, the, the unbelieving Jews for Iconium and Antioch that stirred up the crowd. But, yes, it's really not that hard to imagine. The gospel turns things upside down. You sometimes have to forsake what we were taught by our grandparents, even our parents. Because the gospel makes pretty serious demands, doesn't it? Whoever would gain his life must lose it. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Is that, is that very attractive to any of us here? How about Romans, Paul, chapter 12. Urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Difficult words. Difficult words. So it's not hard to imagine why they wanted to stone them. Now, what we have here is not a resurrection. Luke's a doctor, after all, and an historian. So this is not a resurrection story. It is a miracle, I believe, because he's almost dead. He was knocked out, not knocked down. He was knocked down, not knocked out, and he gets right back up. But, uh, the, but it says here that the brothers surrounded him. So he did make an impact in Lystra. There were believers there. 
I don't believe, that, from the text, I don't believe those were the believers from Antioch or Iconium. I think those were the believers right there in Lystra who surrounded the Apostle Paul there on the outskirts of the city as the Lord miraculously resuscitated him from being half dead, like John Perkins was in the jail. And what does Paul do? This is the most absurd thing in the whole story. goes right back to Lystra. Would that be what you would do? goes right back to Lystra and then on to Derby. Derby is 60 miles from Lystra, as best we can tell. Here's a battered and bruised Paul. This is not just an Achilles pull or a sprained ankle. He's been bashed in the head with rocks, stones. Yet he walks 60 miles to Derby and makes many disciples there as well. And then what does he do after that? He makes, comes back and visits all the churches. All the churches where he'd been persecuted and run out of town, back to Lystra, where he's going to, and Derby actually makes one disciple there we call Timothy. We'll meet him in Acts chapter 16, I believe. So Timothy is saved in Derby, goes back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Antioch, and then ultimately back to where he was sent. Let me just quickly tell you what he did. We must make disciples, Roman numeral 3. Letter A, what did Paul do to make disciples? He strengthened and encouraged believers to continue in the faith. There's not yet a New Testament. There are no letters yet that have been circulated. But there was a clear body of doctrine of Christian faith where he was encouraging them to continue in this orthodoxy, this orthodox faith that had been taught to them. Um, and we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we'll find that, that Paul actually lists the basics of the Christian faith of what has been passed down to him. Because if we're not firm in our faith when persecution, criticism comes, we will fall. We must be grounded in the Word of God. It's why amen is so important. But don't just depend on Sandy. Study the Word. Read commentaries from good Orthodox theologians who have written extensively about every book in the Bible. Know what you believe. Know it firmly. Be able to give an account of your faith at any given time. It is so vitally important that we know what we believe. So in persecution, when, when people ridicule us for being naive about this Christian faith, we can give a studied and steady account of what we believe. Secondly, we will face testing and persecution and tribulation. And that's why sound teaching is so absolutely crucial. But not only does Paul teach sound doctrine, not only does he warn them about persecution, but he provides strong spiritual leadership, which is crucial to the church. Strong spiritual leadership is crucial to the church. He appoints elders in every one of these towns for the church. Now, it may escape your notice, but none of these elders went to seminary. They didn't have amen. They had a few days with the Apostle Paul. Now, admittedly, they were grounded in the Jewish... Many of these Christians were grounded in the Old Testament. And now they saw the fulfillment of the Old Testament taught by Paul of Jesus being the promised Messiah. So they did have a foundation of faith, but they had no letters. They had no New Testament. All they had was the oral tradition. Yet they are made elders of the early church. Paul appoints them in these, in these sentences, but, and it was a team leadership. We don't have really a lot of knowledge of pastors 
until we come... Uh, I mean, there were pastors. Timothy and Titus were two of those in the New Testament. But typically, the early church was led by a group of elders. Now, in your tradition, it may be deacons, but many of you here, as I look around this room, your Sunday school teachers, your elders, your deacons, your leaders in your church, your small group Bible study leaders, you are the leaders of the church. Do not depend totally on your pastor or your pastors. It is your responsibility to grow other disciples in the Christian faith. I'm looking out over this room. I don't know how many people are here, maybe 300. What do you think? Two, 300? I, I don't know, never counted. You know how many believers saw Jesus resurrected according to Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians? About 500. 500 people witnessed the resurrection, saw the ascended Lord. In three or four decades, 30 or 40 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ without one seminary around, the gospel of Jesus Christ absolutely penetrated, pervaded the Roman Empire in 30 or 40 years. Think about that. That is crazy. That is crazy good, right? That is wild. Now look at this room. Just look around the room. What if each of you made a commitment today to share the gospel with one person every month this year? Just one person. But not just share the gospel. But then when they came to faith, discipled them and taught them the basics of the Christian faith. We'd see a revival in Memphis, Tennessee. Someone the other day cornered me and said, you know, with all the nonprofits you've started and all these great, you know, Binghamton Development Corporation, Mayhem and Neighborhood Christian Center and Young Life and Streets and these wonderful churches, mega, we have more mega churches per capita in Memphis than probably any city in the United States. We've got more nonprofit ministries doing great work. But we still have crime and gangs, and he was going on. And, you know, Louie knows me well enough that I could have flamed on him. That would be, be my normal M.O. But I thought about it, and I looked at him, and I said, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm writing a check. I said, not good enough. We need money. We need to fund God's ministry. But what are you doing? Are you mentoring a kid that doesn't have a dad? Are you going down the neighborhood Christian center or streets and, and tutoring a kid that, that doesn't have any help at home? Are you working with refugees that don't know English and are trying to get by? Are you telling your colleagues at work that God loves them and living a life, an exemplary life of Christian discipleship in front of them? Gentlemen, if each of us would win 12 people to Christ this year and then disciple them, we would see a revival in the city of Memphis. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for your word. It's sharp like a sword. It cuts. Sometimes we don't like what it says because it gets right to our hearts, convicts us. But, Lord, you also convert us to be your disciples in this city, in this world. Give us your wisdom, your power, your strength, and your grace to be your people this day, to live out the gospel wherever you take us uh, for the rest of the evening and make make our light shine before men so that they would see our good works and worship you in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.